Hello and welcome. UVA Speaks is a podcast of Lifetime Learning, a division of the Office of Engagement at the University of Virginia. Lifetime Learning brings the knowledge and expertise of UVA's faculty to the university, alumni, friends, and families. My name is Susan Lynch, and I am the Associate Director of Lifetime Learning at the University of Virginia's Office of Engagement. This podcast features Kelly Oriens, an Assistant Professor of Law and Director of the Decarceration and Community Reentry Clinic in the School of Law at the University of Virginia. Professor Oriens is an expert on helping formerly incarcerated people re-enter society and prevent recidivism. Her scholarship has focused on the collateral consequences of arrests, convictions, and incarceration, as well as the history and impact of sentencing reform and prisoner re-entry reform. In this podcast, Professor Oriens will talk with us about decarceration and the law school's clinic that is tackling this issue. So thank you, Professor, for speaking with me today. Hey, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Great. So first, to set the stage for our conversation about decarceration, can you provide some background on the problem of mass incarceration in this country? Definitely. Um, so mass incarceration as a term is actually relatively new. I I would challenge myself to figure this out before our meeting today. Um, I think it was sociologist David Garland, who may have been one of the first academics to start using the word mass um, imprisonment. And then Michelle Alexander in her book, The New Jim Crow, brought the term mass incarceration into the mainstream. At a most basic level, mass incarceration refers to the dramatic rise in incarceration rates that kicked off in the 1960s when about one out of every 1,000 adult Americans were incarcerated. By 2008, the rate of incarceration was one out of every 100 adult Americans. And one thing that's crucial to understand about this statistic is that the criminal legal system and incarceration do not impact communities equally. For example, at least half of federal drug cases are brought against Latinx people and Black folks who make up approximately 13% of the entire population are more than a third of the incarcerated population. And this steep, steep incline in the number of people living in prisons and jails uh, uh, over the last uh, 60 years was driven by several factors. Um, One, the war on drugs, or I should say the failed war on drugs. Uh, The deinstitutionalization movement, referring to the closure of inpatient mental health facilities beginning in the 1950s, welfare reform, and restrictions on access to employment and housing for people with felony convictions when they leave prison. In fact, the process of leaving prison is so bad that there are currently more people in prison for a second or subsequent term than for the first time. Uh, We call this the cycle of incarceration in in academic circles, uh, and and we often refer to it um, uh, by that term because what has resulted is that one out of every two people released from prison in this country return within five years. Um, And this cycle has been plaguing the carceral system for actually more than a century. Um, when I start my my course every semester on the first day, I ask my students to read documents from about 150 years ago, because I think it's really important for them to consider that for more than a century, the United States has been wrestling with the question of incarceration and in particular reentry from incarceration. 
Um, interestingly, one of the uh, earliest documents that we review is from 1870. It's a declaration of principles written by the National Prison Association, which is today known as the American Correctional Association. Um, and even then, they acknowledge that education, poverty, employment, mental health are root causes of incarceration and reincarceration. In 1923, the Census Bureau reported that at least 60% of people leaving prison were going back. In 1939, uh, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, stated in a speech that the circumstances surrounding reentry tend to, quote, push a man back to a life of crime unless we make it our business to help him overcome them. Then in 1984, the Bureau of Justice Statistics under the Reagan administration said in a report, uh, quote, the rate at which prisoners return to confinement is a major consideration of the efficacy of imprisonment as a strategy for crime control. Nevertheless, um, under President Reagan's uh, two terms, tough on crime policies and the war on drugs contributed to a doubling of the prison population. And this is getting us into the era that we now refer to as mass incarceration. Unfortunately, it only continued to grow under his successor, President Bill Clinton, due in particular to the 1994 crime bill, which scaled back parole and lengthened sentences and provided $12.5 billion to construct uh, prisons. Um, additionally, due to the creation of the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, known locally as EDPA, uh, we significantly scaled back the ability of incarcerated people to appeal their convictions and sentences. Um, nevertheless, in 2000, President Clinton's Attorney General Janet Reno said in a speech that reentry from incarceration was the most present problems that we face as a nation. Um, so I bring all that up uh, in answer to a question about what is mass incarceration to say that although mass incarceration is is a more recent problem and a, and a more recent introduction to our way of speaking about this, our country has been grappling for over 150 years with the question of whether incarceration is an effective method of controlling crime and competing uh, and keeping our communities healthy and safe in the first place. Thank you um, for that context. Um, those statistics are um, jarring. Um, and um, so that's, but it's important. It's important to know that within this context. Can you tell us about the challenges that um, those released from prison face in our country and maybe even here locally in, in, in Charlottesville? Absolutely. So across the board uh, in, in, in our country, housing is the biggest problem that people face coming home from prison. And, it, and that is in particular a problem here in Charlottesville, both finding affordable housing and finding landlords that will rent to people with felony convictions. Um, you know, because it's it's not hard to to think about why this would be right. If people can't find a stable place to live, it's nearly impossible to build a strong foundation. So first off, people need an affordable place to live. Um, and that doesn't just affect formerly incarcerated folks. You know, that's an ongoing conversation here in Charlottesville and in many communities across the country. Um, this is made worse uh, because people leaving prison are often released without valid state identification. Um, did, I'm not sure if you, you knew that uh, since 9-11 and the passage of the Patriot Act, you can't even rent a hotel room in the United States without a valid identification card. Um, I don't know if that ever stood out to you the last time you no. rented a hotel. <laughs> right, right. 
So access to valid ID is a, is another major issue. We even when you um, in many municipalities and in many states, if you are stopped by police and cannot provide proof of your identification, you can be incarcerated for 24 to 72 hours while they verify it. Um, so making sure that people are released from prison with a birth certificate and a social security card and a valid state ID is, is paramount uh, to making a smooth transition. Um, another major issue is debt. Uh, more than 80% of people who leave prison are in debt. And this comes from many sources, including child support, which is actually assessed on incarcerated parents by the state if their child receives any type of public assistance during their incarceration. It also comes from court fees and fines, uh, from traffic tickets, from fees assessed if you were represented by a public defender, which are often considered to be free attorneys. But even in the state of Virginia, you can be charged upwards of $400 to $600 to be represented by an indigent defender, um, even if you are found to be, in fact, indigent. Um, also from taxes. So if someone is lucky enough to find a job, uh, they're often getting their wages garnished, sometimes upwards of 65% before taxes in order to deal with that debt. Um, there's also the issue with mental health. Um, even if someone did not enter prison with a mental health disorder as recognized by the DSM, the trauma of incarceration will almost certainly create one by the time that someone leaves jail or prison. And untreated trauma not only makes reentry even more challenging, it makes our communities less safe. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, so can you talk to us a little bit more about the issue of recidivism? I think that you've outlaid what some of the very real issues are and one can understand um, one can see uh, why recidivism would be such a problem. Could, but can you flesh that out a little bit more, that whole issue of recidivism? Yeah, absolutely. So, so recidivism at the most basic level refers to this idea of people returning to jail or prison after release. Um, it's one of the most common ways that we judge success after incarceration. Um, however, interestingly, there actually isn't a uniform definition of recidivism. Some organizations and governments define it very narrowly based on whether someone returns to prison for the exact same crime that sent them there in the first place. Other define, others define it much more broadly um, as any future arrest. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, over half of people who are released from prison return. But that statistic is actually um, a little misleading uh, because within certain groups of people released from prison, recidivism is very, very low. And, and sometimes this can come as a big surprise because recidivism rates are lowest amongst people who are convicted of crimes that actually sort of shock the conscience the most. In particular, the recidivism rate for people released from prison who were previously convicted of murder and people who are released from prison who did more than 10 years are amongst the lowest. Uh, research from the U.S. Sentencing Commission actually concluded that after 10 years of incarceration, recidivism rates de declined by a third. And that's in part due to the fact that people, as people age, there's a sharp drop in the likelihood of them engaging in further crimes, in particular, further acts of violence. 
um, since at least 1994, the Department of Justice studies have concluded that the recidivism rate for people released after a homicide conviction is considerably lower than the rate for people released generally. Um, in fact, the group of people who tend to have the lowest recidivism rates are people convicted of, of sex crimes, actually, which are certainly some of the hardest, I think, for our communities to grapple with and those that that certainly give us the greatest concern. In fact, they that that group of people commit recommit a sex crime at a lower rate than any any other group. Um Less than two percent of people convicted of homicide are ever convicted of another uh, of another homicide. Um, where we see some of the highest rates of recidivism are amongst people with acute substance use disorder and serious mental illness. Um, but one thing I, I certainly want to make clear on the issue of mental illness is that people who are living with mental illness are far more likely to be the victim of a crime of violence than a perpetrator of a crime. Um, and I think that's important to clarify because there's certainly a lot of stigma that goes around um, about mental illness and how it functions. And it's important for us to remember that people living with serious mental illness are far more vulnerable than they are aggressors. Um, however, mental illness is still a major reason why people end up incarcerated. And, and that's due largely to the fact that over the last 70 years, we have almost entirely eliminated custodial mental health care in the United States. This this started um, under President Kennedy, uh, where we we started shutting down facilities that we used to term asylums, and jails and prisons have largely taken their place. Um, and much like the facilities that they replaced that were in very poor condition at the very beginning of the deinstitutionalization movement, um, but much like those facilities, jails and prisons are providing tragically low support services for people living with mental illness. And this is made only worse uh, once people will are released and there are many, many barriers standing in the way of establishing any sort of continuum of care. Yes, thank you for that. Um, yeah, there's so many systems that um, are in place that that um, systemic and are are just deep within our society right now. Um, can you tell us about the work that you're doing at the law school at the decarceration and community reentry clinic? Yeah, absolutely. So, so within the within the clinic, at the highest level, we focus on helping law students learn these skills related to helping people get out of prison and stay out of prison. And so, the uh, students that are in my clinic are often working on at least two, sometimes three projects simultaneously. At least one of those is related to um, legal work that's associated with either clemency, referring to um, executive actions that can result in people coming out of prison, most commonly pardons uh, by a governor or by the, by the president, um, as well as applications for post-conviction relief, uh, which are one of the few options that people have once they are sentenced in order to undo um, or, or mitigate um, a lengthy sentence. And this, this is uh, directly addressing some of the extreme sentences that we saw come about in the aftermath of the 1994 crime bill. And so we work on cases um, here in Virginia, in Washington, D.C., as well as in Louisiana. And much of that work is focused on doing 
what unfortunately was often not done at the time of sentencing, which is really to get the full story. This involves uh, doing a a very detailed social history with our of our clients and interviewing collateral witnesses. Also engaging uh, parties that were harmed. If a case that we're working on involved harm to to somebody, whether whether somebody was killed or whether somebody was injured or whether someone suffered property or damage to their property, we do what we call defense initiated victim outreach, where we engage with the harmed parties. And this is this is really a very important theme within the clinic, and and something that we spend a lot of time talking about is that this binary opposition of offender versus victim is really a false binary. Um, The vast majority of people that are incarcerated uh, and whose families are impacted by incarceration wear both hats simultaneously. Uh, Most of the clients I have ever represented have been both uh, have been people who have inflicted harm on their communities and people that they know and have also been victims of of harm and have have had loved ones who have been murdered who were victims of sexual abuse who are victims of child abuse um and so it's not it's not as clean as saying you know there are some people in our community that harm people and other people that are harmed um it's it's a bit more complicated than that and we spend quite a bit of time engaging with that harm so that we can better understand uh what what it means to build a system that could properly address that harm and redress some of the mistakes that we have made in the past, in particular around extreme sentencing. And, you know, to use um, the words of Brian Stevenson, who we were lucky enough to hear from in the spring at UVA, um, our goal is to, to get proximate. Uh, to get proximate with people who have been condemned, because we think that it is in those interactions that we learn the most about how much better we as a community and as a society can be and where we're falling short. Um, So that's on the one side, that's the sort of getting out aside on the staying outside uh, we, one of my students who just graduated, uh, Whitney Carter, she's a, she just graduated from the law school. When she was a second year law student, she and another student, Juhi Desai, designed a survey, uh, which was uh, put together for the purpose of trying to better understand the experiences of formerly incarcerated people who in Virginia. And so it's um, it's a survey that takes about 30 minutes to complete. We're able, thanks to some fundraising they did and, and support from the law school, we're able to provide $20 for, for 30 minutes of someone's time, asking them a, a whole litany of questions to better understand the holistic experience of somebody coming home from prison. With the results of that survey, and we've interviewed over 100 people so far, we are able to identify common recurring themes so that we can target our resources in the clinic to helping people resolve those issues. And so our preliminary results uh, from that survey, we've uh, identified affordable housing and a lack of affordable housing being one of the biggest issues, uh, record sealing and access to record sealing so that people, um, so that we can limit the ways in which someone's prior convictions can be used against them is another big issue. Becoming a full citizen again um, is one of the biggest requests that we get in the clinic. People want to have all their civil rights restored that they lost uh, by by virtue of their conviction and their incarceration. 
Um, also things like uh, creating a will or a power of attorney for somebody who's going into incarceration so that their loved ones can act on their behalf while they're incarcerated um, so that someone's um, the property or estate or any any possessions they might have can be protected by a will should something happen to them. Uh, also, driver's license reinstatement is uh, and dealing with delinquent traffic tickets. Um, also, the debt that accompanies them is is a major issue that we confront. And we're continuing to conduct the survey, both with people who have recently been released. And also, thanks to Colonel Coomer, the superintendent for the Albemarle Charlottesville Regional Jail, um, we're interviewing people who are pre-release uh, so that we can start that transition process before somebody gets out and ensure a smoother transition. I'm glad to hear that that's that kind of um, cooperation with the local um, authorities. That That's good to hear. So how yeah. many, yeah. How many? Can I say something on that point? Is it yes, okay? Yes, please. Um, so actually, yeah, I, I the collaboration that we have with um, with the jail is really interesting and really important. And I, I believe that it's a it's a really important thing for my students to understand is possible. I, I don't want to sort of over inflate or exaggerate co how cooperation can exist. There, there's certainly a lot of policies and laws and reform that needs to occur to ensure that there's equality across the system and that that certain, um, you know, certain government agencies don't have more power. For instance, the prosecutor's office doesn't have more power than the public defender's office. Uh, but we had, we in the spring did this really cool collaboration with the Commonwealth attorney's offices, the clerk of court, the sheriff's office. Um, and Legal Aid Justice Society, where we all came together and on one day we processed record sealing petitions uh, for more than 25 people in the Charlottesville, Albemarle area. And we all came together. And, and that's the biggest issue, actually, with record sealing is it's it's a fairly simple process, although it does involve like nine different forms. <laughs> so the bureaucracy of it, I, I argue, could probably be toned down a little bit. But it's it, the 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 difficulty is actually because of the length of time it takes for this to be processed because so many systems are involved, and so by bringing simply bringing those those institutions together, we were able to process all of these petitions on one day. The one outlier that we need to bring into the fold is the Virginia State Police. Um, we want to invite them to be an actual player at the table the next time we do it. But but for this one day, it was just this incredible example of it didn't require changing any laws. It didn't even require um, a ton of money. It, it just required all of us agreeing to work together and to be physically present um, uh, in a building on the downtown mall. And uh, and we were able to get so much done. And I, I think sometimes it's just as simple as that. Um so yeah. Right, right. And what a um amazing way for your students to feel a sense of accomplishment and um that they've really done something to assist people. Um, that's that's amazing. So how many students are usually in the clinic? Um is it a semester long, year long or how, how does that work? Yeah, yeah, so it's a semester long clinic with an option to stay a second semester in an advanced section of the clinic. Uh, between the intro section and the advanced section, I usually have about 15 students um, every semester. And then I have a couple students that work with me as research assistants. Uh, so I think last semester I was supervising uh, 18 students that were working on um, different projects that we had inside the clinic. Well, that's great. That's wonderful. So 
And finally, what is it? What are some of the ways that all of us in in our communities can support formerly incarcerated people as they re-enter our communities and our workforce? I think we all have some responsibility. And and I got to say too, I think more and more, I meet people where this is the the this is the default. I, I think years ago, when I maybe twenty years ago, when I really first started doing this work professionally, my I had an incarcerated family member growing up, so I knew this on a personal level. But on a professional level, it was much more adversarial uh, 20 years ago. It was much harder to find people that cared about this issue. Now it's uh, far more common that I meet people that that are really deeply enthusiastic about wanting to do better. And so I have a, I have a couple of thoughts on that. Um, at, a, at a basic level, business owners and landlords should not be using arrest or conviction history as the sole determinant of whether they are going to offer someone a job or a place to live, period. Um, for one, because it's only feeding issues that are driving people back into incarceration. Uh, access to housing and access to employment are are incredibly crucial uh, for someone being able to be successful and stay out of prison once they've been released. Um, but also because arrest and conviction history are just not good indicators of someone's worth. Even if our criminal legal system impacted every community equally and fairly, which we know it does not, I still believe that every person is worth more than the worst thing that they've ever done. And I am stealing that quote from Sister Helen Prejean. but this, uh, but that's that's really just one way, and it it only speaks to those members of our communities that employ and house people. More generally, I think all of us need to stop accepting our criminal legal system as the best we can do. Um, I like a lot of people that that might listen to this have been impacted by violence, gun violence, domestic violence, um, and. And like many people, I love people and have loved people who are dealing with mental illness or substance use disorder and and have had to wrestle with um, the criminal legal system being the only system that seems to respond directly to those issues. Um, uh, And so like people and who who may have had similar experiences, I know that the criminal legal system is not enough. And I meet more and more officers and more and more prosecutors every day who who agree emphatically with that, who know they and their offices are not equipped, nor were they ever really intended to be the groups that was respond to these issues, which are at, at which are truly public health issues. Um, but as I outlined when we first started talking, for more than 150 years, um, we have been wrestling with this system and recognizing its limitations. And what's resulted is that we've built the largest prison population in the world. Um, and if that system worked, we would theoretically be the safest and healthiest country in the world, um, which we absolutely are not. Mm-hmm. Um And now I'm not saying that we should shut down the system and shut down prisons tomorrow. And I'm not saying that there are not people who absolutely need to be incapacitated in order to protect them and those around them. But the cost of the U.S. prison system is estimated at about $80 billion annually. And when you factor in the social cost of incarceration, that figure balloons to over a trillion dollars. And Speaking just for myself, 
I do not feel as though we are getting a trillion dollars worth of value from our current system. So I would ask um, all of us in earnest to question, at least question, whether we should continue to tolerate our current system. And if you come to the same answer as I do, then I ask that we give ourselves permission to radically reimagine what the health and safety of our communities could look like uh, if we were to invest a trillion dollars into a different way of doing things um, and then actively work for that change, both by voting in leaders who will also share that radical imagination um, and and being leaders and members on our block, in our neighborhood, in our zip code that are promoting radical imaginative ideas. Right. Thank you. Um, there's so much to think about. And um, thank you for framing this issue and um, allowing us to think about it in perhaps a different way than we're thinking about it right now. And it can expand our understanding of really this issue. So I want to thank you so much, uh, Professor Orians, for sharing this information, you know, about your important work. I have had the opportunity to speak to Deidre Enright and the um, Innocence Project. She's now at the Project for Informed Reform. And also I did a, a, a virtual program with with Deidre Enright and Rachel Harmon around the Center of Criminal Justice. So I, I know that the law school is working. There's so many aspects to this issue, and it's impressive to see that the law school is working on this in so many different ways. So thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and expertise with UVA's alumni, friends, and families. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you all for listening. <laughs> thank you. And thank you all for listening. For upcoming podcasts and other lifetime learning programming, recordings, and blogs, please visit our website at engagement.virginia.edu forward slash learn. You can also find our podcast on the Virginia Audio Collective, which is a network of UVA podcasts hosted by WTJU Radio and can be found at virginiaaudio.org. So thanks again, and we look forward to you taking part in future lifetime learning programs.